This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you go into the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15. S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. My name is James Gearing, and this is episode 277. And I am so excited to bring to you this week, Clint Malarchuk. Now, Clint is a legend in the NHL, initially as a goalkeeper and then transitioning over to coaching. And tragically, he's also known for a video when he was struck in the throat by an opposing player's skate and almost bled to death out on the ice. So that is one page of his entire story, and you will hear the power of his mental health struggles, of how he entered the NHL, his philosophy on mental wellness, on becoming an elite athlete, on mentorship, so many areas that he discusses in this interview. Before we get to that, as I always say, please just take a moment and go to whichever podcast app you listen to this on, whether it's iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and then most importantly, rate the show. The more five-star ratings we get, the more visible we are for people looking for a podcast like this. And then, as I've said many, many times, you guys are this podcast. So the more you share, the bigger this grows, the more people it's going to reach. And episodes like Clint's that are so powerful truly may save a life if they get to the right person. So I ask you to help share this project. So with that being said, I introduce to you Clint Malarchuk. Enjoy. So, Clint, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Oh, my pleasure. It's uh, something that's uh, important in our in our professions and society. So, always uh, willing to chat about you know uh, my adventures with uh, mental illness and PTSD and. Yeah, you name it, I've been uh, probably diagnosed with it. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's interesting. So, I read the book Matter of Inches, and uh, yeah, your story. 
you know, you, a lot of people obviously we're going to talk about this are going to think of you with that one specific event with the um, the accident on the rink. But um, you know, it really starts right at the very very beginning. So I'd love to do that um, and then work our way chronologically forward. So where were you born? And then tell me what your family unit was like, what your parents did, and how many siblings. Well, I was uh, born in Grand Prairie, Alberta, which is, uh, uh, well, it's north. It's way up there in, in northern uh, northern part of Alberta. So it, it's cold winters, long winters. Grew up, uh, you know, playing hockey. That's what we did when you get that much winter and snow and ice. And uh, uh, you, you just grow up around that hockey culture. I uh, had an older, have an older brother, uh, seven years older than me, and a, and a, a sister is six years older than me. So, um, you know, we, uh, we saw a different, uh, because we're that far apart, at least, you know, I'm that far apart from them. We saw different things with, uh, but you know, I, my dad was a great guy and he was my hero. He was a hockey goalie, just like I was. And, and, uh, but the problem is he, uh, he had pretty severe alcoholism. Um, and you know, it's a progressive disease. Uh, so what they saw, you know, seven and six years ahead of me, you know, I probably saw more than they did because, of, like I said, the disease progressed in him, and he came, uh, he came quite abusive. Uh, and we, we, you know, we know so many people; they're just such great people, but then they get into some sort of an addiction, and it, it uh, turns them into a monster. Now, reading that, so you know, like you said, as you were younger, through younger eyes, you were kind of, you know, you, you weren't aware of that side of him because he was just your dad and your hero. Um, and then as, as you go into the book, you talk about that more looking back now, especially after being in the journey of self-discovery yourself, what do you think it was about your dad's earlier life that, that led him to the alcoholism? Well, knowing what I do know now about, uh, you know, everything I've been through and, you know, a zillion counselors and psychologists and psychiatrists and, you know, I've had a life of, uh, uh, life <laughs> full life of experiences with with mental illnesses and 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 uh, self-reflection writing the book I look back and I think I really do uh, that my dad was mentally ill and like so many people back in in those days you know I was born in 61 so we're talking you know when I was uh, a young kid in the 60s and early 70s you know with my father I, uh, there's a huge correlation between addiction and, and mental illness uh for me as i learned later you know and i'm sure it was i look back and i think this was probably for my daddy he, he probably had anxiety and some sorts of depression and uh i know he had some self uh, esteem issues looking researching back and uh so uh you know for me i'll just talk about my addiction was uh alcohol um and it was it was a medication for me i didn't party much uh, you know sure I, I was a hockey player we partied you know regular but I, I you know um i used alcohol uh if i was anxious it would calm me down if i was depressed it would pick me up if my ocd obsessive compulsive disorder which uh, uh, i had uh, or still do but um it, it would calm it uh where i didn't have to do certain things, uh, certain compulsions. Uh, so alcohol was, was, uh, a medication and, and just getting back to your question. Yeah. I think my father looking back now and, and this is all fairly recent self, uh, reflection on my life. I think my dad, and it does, 
Uh, also, I found out uh, in the last oh, year or so, uh, m- my family has quite a history of mental illness. Um, you know, I'm talking about cousins and, and uh, uh, aunts and, uh, like I said, maybe my father. Right now, I know you, you talk about yourself kind of discovering what ultimately you realized was OCD even when you were young. So so tell me about that. When did you realize that there was that compulsion, especially with the hygiene side? Well, yeah, you know, everybody thinks uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. First thing they think, germophobia, uh, constant hand washing and, and showering or whatever, uh, light switches, counting. Things like that, and and I did I did definitely go through some contamination issues when I was young. Um, you know, I was never diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder until I, I was like thirty years old, and um, uh, for me that was because my mom was trying to get me into doctors, saying this kid's really suffering with anxiety, and he's. Uh, uh, fortunately, though, I was able to channel my compulsions into hockey rather than to germs or uh, counting or any of those other things that that we go through. So I became very obsessive about my uh, wanting to be an NHL hockey player. Like I said, my dad was a a great goalie. Uh, My older brother was a great goalie as well. So it was in me. uh, Maybe that helped me obsess about being a great goalie like them. Uh, you know, like my brother was drafted to the NHL as well. Um, you, you know, so I looked up to these uh, these two men, and uh, like I said, my brother was seven years older than me, so he he actually had a lot of influence on my uh, my teens after Dad had really kind of uh, left the picture, and uh, you know, and and again, he was kind of a hero. So I I was able. Uh, you know, just that obsessive compulsiveness and, and uh, compulsively train to be a hockey goalie. You know, as a kid, I, I mean, I was young, 12 years old, and I'm training like, like uh, you don't even start training that young. Well, maybe they do now, but <laughs> we didn't back then. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it was interesting watching, as you were saying, so you had this OCD side that in one respect, people might look from the outside uh, looking in going, well, that's weird, you know, the light switch thing and not be able to touch anything because of the germs. But then you found as a very young boy, the the healthy way of channeling that, which was the the meticulous training and drilling and, you know, that you talk about, you know, your, your racquetball later to to funnel that and channel that into something that was a good, healthy outlet. Well, that's uh, that, that's I'm one of the fortunate ones, I think, uh, with that disorder. And and I'm not saying it didn't overlap into into. I still had the germophobia, uh, you know, you know, growing up and and even even today I still do a little bit. Um, and so, but the main thing was it was I was able to uh, put most of it into into the hockey. And uh, you know, I don't think I was the most talented guy in the world. Uh, a lot of people uh, later on said, man, you were so good when you were this age or that age and everything. But, you know, I was very insecure and I, I, I you know, I didn't believe it. And so I felt like if I was going to have to uh, outperform or make a team or anything, I had to outwork uh, of, because I thought I didn't have much skill. So that's where the OCD came in and the repetitions that I would do, countless uh, repetitions. Um 
there was a deal that uh, we did a few years ago. It was an ESPN 30 for 30, but it was a short. It's only like a 10-minute uh, deal. And they had this kid that uh, kind of portrayed me when I was young, um, and he did a great job. Uh, uh, you know, this young kid, he's about 12 years old, and he's he, he's supposed to be Clint when I'm 12. And, man, they, it, I really was like, holy moly, that's how hard I did work. This kid worked his butt off because he had to. The cameras were rolling. <laughs> Now you you talk about that quite a bit, like that um, the the lack of self belief that you had talent, and that's funny because it's something I've talked about with myself. And the the phrase I came across, I don't know, only a couple of years ago, I think, was imposter syndrome. And I wonder now, you know, if if you talk to your fellow, you know, elite athletes in the AHL, how many of these men actually also had that self doubt? Well, I, this is my opinion. Athletes are the most insecure people in the world. I mean, I, I played, uh, hockey was, you know, my life. I played, I coached in the NHL, you know, for, I, golly, I've been in the game all, I'm, I'm 68 and I got out of it about four, three, well, four years ago when my book came out. And so I know athletes and, uh, especially hockey players. And, you know, part of it is the job insecurity. Although nowadays they make a, a ton of dough, uh, it's a lot different when when I was. But we had an NHL or, or a, I played for Buffalo Sabers in uh, uh, late '80s, early '90s, and we had a reunion just on the last weekend. And uh, it, wow, I mean to see. And there's one guy that I have talked to for probably about four years now that is really, really struggling with a lot of things. Um, but I meet a lot of these guys and all, all, all we do is bitch and moan on <laughs> how much money everybody's making now and how our jobs were on the line all the game, you know, one bad game and you could be in the minors and that mental, uh, uh, it, you know, we didn't have a lot of stability back then. Uh, it's a, a lot better now for sure. But, uh, to see these guys and we're all talking openly, uh, now we're, you know, 50, 60 year old men and we're going, you know, Oh man, remember that, you know, God, I had that one game and I thought next day I'd be gone. And so, yeah, very insecure. Um, I, I think now with today's athlete, uh, even though they got the security, the financial security that their, uh, contracts are so big now, uh, it, it's still, um, for them, uh, their self-worth, a lot of our self-worth goes, well, here, here's an example. Young Clint Malarchuk, if I had a good game, I was a good kid. If I had a bad game, I was a bad kid. Now that's pretty sick thinking. And, you know, talking to these other guys that I played with, uh, yeah, I think we all experienced that type of sick thinking growing up and, and as, as pros, especially as pros. Yeah, no, I think from the outside looking in now with these elite athletes, like you said, their their environment seems to be you know set up for them to thrive now. Like you said, they're well paid. They've got the top nutritionists and trainers and all these other things, but they are the 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 microscope that they're under now, especially with the social media side. Um, I'm I can imagine that's probably replaced the other stresses that you had earlier in your career. Well, that, yeah, and I, I, I was kind of leading into that now because because of the social media, every every play, 
uh, good play, bad play, or whatever, and the scrutiny that that goes on with the media now because of social media, because of the uh, high tech internet, you can watch a game after the game is over, you know, on your computer, and you can live stream, and you can do this. So definitely, like uh, we we older players were complaining about uh, this and that, but now I look like you just mentioned at our uh, today's athlete. And the scrutiny uh, is very, very intense because of, uh, you know, Internet and social media technology. Yeah. So when you were younger, obviously, you started, you know, growing in your career. Um, Tell me about the kind of journey that took you from not drinking and focusing and being purely, you know, an athlete to when you started finding yourself wandering and, and, and your mental and physical ill health started turning. Well, my ill health, you know, I was never diagnosed until um, after my injury in, in uh, 1989, you know, when I cut my jugular vein in, in a game. That's when everything started to come out. Um, I was never diagnosed with anything, uh, even as a kid. And I was hospitalized uh, one time for a couple months. And, you know, they just said, well, he's a real anxious kid. Good luck, lady, to my mom. And... Uh, you know, we've come so far, thank God. Um, but it, 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 to, for for me, uh, that accident, we don't understand. Well, you do. I know you do. You, uh, firefighting and, and you've dealt with trauma, probably with yourself, but with others, uh, compadres and colleagues, uh, teammates, as you probably want to call them at times. Um, the, the trauma of my accident was when... Uh, I let's, well, first of all, I came back in 10 days, you know, I almost died on the ice. I became kind of a cult hero, uh, because I came back so quick that city really, really embraced me. And, uh, you know, the season was getting close to the end and then we had playoffs. So I just rode that adrenaline and it was next season where I really started to, uh, struggle with, uh, the OCD things. Uh, it was hard for me to leave the house. The, the, I was starting to have panic attacks. Um, the, the depression and anxiety were, you know, it was it was bipolar. I'd be one minute I'd be so dang anxious, next minute I'm so dang depressed. So, anyways, I didn't sleep for ten days because of the flashbacks that I started to have. The, the I guess undiagnosed PTSD. I would see that skate come up. And and then I'd see the blood and I'd wake straight up in bed, uh, you know, just like in the movies In the movies. They are, no one sits straight up in bed like that. And yeah, it was that was me. And uh, uh, we had a Super Bowl party at uh, our captain's house, Pat LaFontaine. And, and uh, I was only there probably 20 minutes and I went home I, I, because I hadn't slept in, in uh, what, what I was doing to sleep to avoid the nightmares. I'd, I'd sleep in a chair. And it'd be like on an airplane. Some people, I see some people can really sleep, but I can't. Oh, my head will bobble around. And so that's how I was getting by for my sleep for about 10 days, just on a chair, bobbling around and avoiding those, uh, those flashbacks. Uh, and I, I was doing all this. You got to understand, I was doing it all in silence and darkness. You know, I wasn't telling anybody. And the reason being is because of the stigma. Uh, they think that I might be uh, screwed up mentally or whatever they called it back then, mentally crazy, mentally ill, whatever, that my career would be done. So I didn't want to 
divulge any of this. Well, anyways, uh, at that Super Bowl party, uh, uh, I had a, uh, I went back home and there was a, a prescription that I was on for pain painkiller. And it said, do not drink well with alcohol will make you drowsy. And I said, this is great. <laughs> I'm going to sleep tonight. So I, I took a few extra painkillers and, uh, and, uh, not, not, not like a bottle or anything like that, maybe five or six. And then I drank a bottle of scotch, uh, which resulted into my, uh, heart stopping. And that's when I got, woke up in the hospital. They thought it was a, uh, suicide attempt, which wasn't. And, uh, it was sleep deprivation and all these, all these things. It was, you know, undiagnosed PTSD from my, my incident, obviously not sleeping, avoiding, uh, the nightmares, all those things. So, uh, I finally, that's the first time I got diagnosed, uh, with mental illness and, but PTSD wasn't a set of words back then. And I was never diagnosed with that. Nothing of, of my accident came, came up. Uh, you know, doctors uh, never ever brought that up. Um, I look back and I'm going, "Wow, that's kind of weird." You know, you <laughs> you get this guy that's going through all these things, and all you know, you might want to look into it a bit. But I didn't think the accident affected me either because I dealt with these things um, to some degree, certain degrees, my whole life. Yeah. Now going back to um the the accident first so for everyone listening i'm sure 95 percent of the people know exactly what we're talking about already but um you were in goal i think was it one of the the opposite team was pulled down and his skate ended up cutting into your throat yeah yeah right. exactly so so you lacerated a jugular vein thank god it didn't hit your carotid artery how the hell were you back on the ice in 10 days it's my first question well, well that's the that's the amazing thing that you know I don't think it's so amazing. I had to wait till the stitches came out that, you know, first of all, my thinking was, you know, I grew up on a ranch and cowboy in and that you, 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 you get bucked off a horse, you get right back on. You don't want that fear to set in. You don't want to think the horse, uh, knows how to beat you now. You know, all this mentality that I broke, uh, uh, was brought up with, but then, uh, um, it, it was just, the thing is I had no counseling and maybe it was okay to come back as quick as I did. Um, but it would have been nice if I had counseling, none was offered and I didn't think of it either. I didn't, didn't even think of it. And, uh, so I just thought get back as, which in a way was, uh, uh, it, it just endeared me to the city so much. I mean, I, even to this day, I was just there, like I said, for a reunion and they have a band called Malarchuk in, in Buffalo. And it's been 30 years since I played there. So, uh, I'm, I'm certainly remembered for, you know, courage and grit and hard work and, and things like that. But, um, yeah, the, the, the fact I came back that quick, uh, was I guess the most important fact is uh, uh, maybe I could have come back, but I should have had some sort of, con you know, consultation or something. Yeah. Well, I know. And we have, you know, we see these these NHL players that, you know, they get the teeth knocked out or, you know, lacerate the, the forehead or something like that. Well, you know, they tape themselves back up and they get back on the ice. But 
a a jugular vein, you'd think <laughs> the medical advice would have been, no, it's not an option. Like, you know, we need to make sure this is completely healed up before. I mean, as the psychological side aside, just just anatomically with that that an important a vessel being being stitched up that they would have you know forced you to well to wait they said i lost they said i i lost a third of my uh my blood and you know that's quite a bit i guess so i remember uh in the summer you know the season's over i think we were out in the playoffs around april middle of april or something probably and then the uh, in July, I was still weak from, you know, because I didn't uh, have a transfusion or given blood or nothing. And I was just uh, really, really weak until, oh, shoot, you know, four or five months uh, to build up, I guess, my blood supply again. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then to be, you know, play at an elite level a few days after, that sounds, I mean, it's admirable, like you said. And I, I totally get why everyone had so much admiration for you. But from a medical professional side, it seems like it was some pretty shitty advice to, to allow you back on the ice. But, uh, yeah. you know, 30, 30 years ago, too. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so, well, then the other side is, so there, when I was reading the book, there was something that really stuck out to me. I talk a lot about sleep deprivation and the effects on mental health in in this podcast because not uh, acutely like you had, but chronically, you know, these first responders are are sleep deprived, these doctors, nurses, you know, when they're doing these shifts. And I see now the effects on the long-term health, the short-term, you know, acuity. Um, when, when you started... Yeah, you know, not being able to sleep. What were your ob- obs- excuse me? What were your observations internally of those preceding days? Well, all I wanted, to, you know, as an athlete, you're I'm, I'm just trying to save my job, so I'm just trying to get enough sleep to get by without having that flashback. Because you know, when you say a flashback or a nightmare, a lot of people don't understand that when you wake up. Uh, your heart is pounding, you're, you're sweating, you're grabbing at your neck. So it's not like just a bad dream. You're actually reliving this in every way, physically, phys- physiologically, uh, spiritually, every way. And uh, so and, and talk about uh, sleep deprivation and, and, and that, you know, I that was on my that was my doing because I didn't want to have that flashback, that nightmare. So that was me. I, I could sleep. I could fall asleep. But the problem was I would wake up uh, to that reoccurring nightmare. And so that's why I slept in a chair. And, uh, you know, that was self-inflicted uh, sleep deprivation. But boy, oh boy, I'll tell you what, your mind uh, doesn't function very good uh, having experienced that kind of sleep deprivation. Uh, you, 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 it's almost like you, if you aren't ent- mentally ill already, it's like going through a mental illness of some sort. Uh, I still struggle with, uh, with insomnia and, uh, I was on a road trip uh, a few years ago and I didn't sleep for two nights and I'm going, what the heck, what is going on? And I, and I wasn't tired either. I mean, I go to bed and, uh, try to sleep and I couldn't. So I just get up and do stuff and in my hotel room. I was on the road and and uh, then I realized, and this is very interesting, that our body does remember trauma. And I look and I went, oh, and I just learned this too, you know, a year or two before this all happened. I went, oh, it's my anniversary of my jugular vein being cut. And it wasn't to the exact day, 
It can be, you know, any, you know, within a couple of weeks or, you know, before or after. And I went, oh, no wonder. And, uh, you know, uh, that is one of my, one of my anniversaries that I have to be conscious of that I might not sleep. Uh, you know, I, I was, I was totally functioning great, but I just couldn't sleep all because of that anniversary that I didn't acknowledge right away. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, even just, just the, the weather of that time of year or a holiday that's close to that. I mean, I can see how the multiple chronological reminders. Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's been proven. So, you know, like everything now, it's all scientifically proven. <laughs> <laughs> and then this whole thing is also, if we see it with our own eyes, do we need to wait for studies? Um, all right. Then, uh, so you had this period where you weren't sleeping and obviously it drove you to the, the time you took the sleeping pills and, and the scotch. Had you had any behavior like that before or was this kind of like a, a pivotal moment in, in the post injury process? You know, that, that's a good question, James. Um, I, I, you know, obviously I'd struggled with several issues, uh, you know, depression, anxiety, insecurities, all these things, but uh, not to the degree after the injury, like, uh, you know, like I said, I, you learn a lot. And, uh, if you're maybe predisposed to, let's say mental illness of some sort, um, a trauma can set it right to the max. Like, you know, that's why we have so many, uh, first responders, military people that, uh, they experience trauma and then all of a sudden they're almost like a different person. They're struggling, uh, so deeply with so many different issues. Yeah. So then what was the, the journey like after that first event? So, you, you know, you're in the hospital. Thank goodness it was your, your wife did CPR and actually kept you alive. Well, that, that began, well, first of all, a diagnosis of mental illness. Uh, and then, uh, a two and a half to three year period of, and I don't want to discourage people, but we're talking 30 years ago or more. Um, and we've come so much far further with our medications, our counseling, our therapy, all these things. So what happened, I was like trying different medications, different doctors. They were sending me to specialists, um, and nothing was working and with antidepressants or these, uh, you know, I, I, people like me, uh, don't produce enough serotonin in our brain and that's a, a mood, uh, stabilizer, you know, makes you happy, makes you, you know, whatever. Um, so all these, uh, antidepressants and boot and, and boosters that I was on, uh, weren't working and it was almost three years. And then my play, uh, had also declined, uh, uh, you know, I was struggling so much off the ice and, and so it affected my on ice performance and I eventually, uh, got sent to the minors and that's where, uh, you know, <laughs> a blessing in disguise. Uh, yeah, you get sent to the minors, but, uh, my first game in, in, in the minors, I, I didn't do very good. I let in four goals on six shots and got pulled after the first period. And I was like, I was devastated. I'm like, I can't even play in the minors. So I went into the uh, coach's office at the end of the game, and I'm in tears. And I said, I can't take this anymore. I'm retiring. And he was like, uh, his name was Rick Dudley. He's still uh, a prominent hockey figure in in, in the NHL. Anyways, uh, 
he says, well, what's going on? And I'm like, I, I can't, I can't, you know, function and this on my mind. I can't turn it off. I was talking about the mental illness more than the, uh, the hockey thing. And he, he says, oh, I thought you just came down here to get your game back and play a few games and you go back to the NHL. I said, not a chance, Rick. I'm so screwed up. Um, so uh, by chance, he, he, I don't know how they found him, but they found this great doctor in San, this was in San Diego um, that was a cutting edge leader in, in obsessive compulsive disorder and, and these issues. And, uh, so they got me in to see this guy, Dr. Stahl, and, uh, I'll never forget him. And he, he got, he said, son, you're going to be fine. He was so confident. And you got to remember, James, I've been hearing this same crap for three years. Oh, you, you, you know, this struggle work, this, you know, and they're trying to be positive and helpful. Um, but this guy was different. He, he, he said, you're going to be fine and wrote me a prescription. And, uh, after six weeks, I was, I was living in California at the time, you know, playing there. And I'm for the first time, I'm noticing how nice it is outside and the sunshine and the temperature. That's how deep and dark, uh, my depression had gone at nine weeks on that medication. My ruminating thoughts and, and all that, uh, were gone. And that started a journey of about 14, 15 years of really uh, enjoying life and and uh, feeling for the first time, I said, is this what it feels like to be normal? Yeah, and that was Zoloft? Yes, it was. Okay, because yeah, I remember reading there was Haldol and some other ones that, that weren't. Well, the thing about Haldol, I, I was playing with the Buffalo Sabres and, you know, they're trying different drugs and they put me on Haldol. Now, Haldol is highly sedative, which might be okay for some people, but not when you're trying to stop a hundred mile an hour slap shot. From Wayne <laughs> you know, it's just, uh, the last thing you need to be is sedate. You need to be the other way. Yeah. Now, now it's, it's really good to, to read this and find someone that, you know, took a, took a med and it worked very well. I know that there's obviously a, but at the end of this sentence, but, um, you know, that, that you found the right one and it did help. And there are people out there, um, you know, that, that, counseling is all they need ultimately but then there's obviously the other side where the brain chemistry truly is at a place where yeah where where you need the meds so um it was i think very enlightening for me to read that you know this one didn't work this one didn't work but then zoloft did and it was it was a good fit for you at that time oh yeah and and uh, i i do remember it when it kicked in and started I, i honestly said to myself is this what it feels like to be normal in some ways, I was kind of mad because I feel like I missed, uh, uh, you know, had so much anguish in my life for, you know, growing up and, and all that all that time. And then all of a sudden I get a drug and I'm like, this is all I needed. <laughs> but on the other hand, I was so grateful that uh, I wasn't living that, that hell anymore in my head and that it was gone. So it was kind of a double-edged sword there. Yeah. Now, with... Once you were on Zoloft, were you able to still get therapy or counseling? And, and did it help once you were in that better place mentally? It, it did. I did a lot of counseling, uh, some uh, exposure therapy for like germs. You know, I want you to touch the toilet, right, with your hand. And I no, I ain't. Who's being on it? <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, so I did all that kind of all all that thing, but the real kicker was the meds. Um, definitely, 
uh, how, how Dr. Stahl explained it to me, uh, I didn't, I don't produce enough serotonin in my brain. And, uh, that's where, uh, this booster or drug would, you know, make me get the right amount of serotonin. That'd be like a normal person. And, uh, uh I guess what, you know, some people don't like to uh, take meds or anything, but um, the, the alternative wasn't good, you know, to, to not take meds. I, I was, I was suicidal, uh, depressed, anxious, panic, you know, still not uh, functioning as a, as a normal person. And, and so for, for me, uh, you know, people that, you know, criticize medication, um, I'm kind of like, well, I don't like the alternative. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think and it's, it's horses for courses, isn't it? It's, it's, you know, there's no one size fits all. And there's many people on here that have, have been struggling mentally that so many different things have worked. EMDR, equine therapy, you know, I mean, it could be anything, but there's definitely that section as well where the pharmaceutical side is, is going to make a difference either short term till they can get to a certain point or right. even long term. Yeah, and, and that's what people uh, sometimes get. Well, I have to be on this drug the rest of my life? No, no, not necessarily. Uh, it could be a short-term, uh, you know, you just need a boost to get back to where you should be, and your body readjusts somehow. But, uh, you know, you mentioned EMDR. Um, so about, uh, it's been about almost a year now. I started to have flashbacks, uh, waking up at night screaming, um, my wife was like, what's going on? And I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> it was, it was crazy. So I, I, I don't know how I found out about it or whatever, but I went to a local psychologist here that did, uh, EMDR and we did three sessions, one for my childhood, uh, trauma, one for my jugular vein being severed trauma. And then later on, uh, which we haven't talked about yet, but we probably will my suicide attempt that trauma. And uh, it was gone. So check it out, people, uh, EMDR. Everything is, you know, some things work for some people and vice versa, and it's all over the map. But uh, that really fixed up my flashbacks, and I came back and, you know, could sleep. That's so good to hear. I'm actually, uh, my little boy is going to be going through EMDR um, at a clinic locally here. Uh, he's had some some trauma in in. He went through divorce. He saw some things in, in the other household. And, you know, there's definitely some things that I know will help him because um, he's, he's very mild, um, intrusive thoughts himself. Well, well, for people that don't know what EMDR, it's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And again, James, scientifically proven there's something with left, right, left, right with your eyes and your brain. And that's how this is all based all I know it worked is it worked for me if uh, anybody struggling out there with uh, uh, PTSD or symptoms, uh, you know, well, you know, we, we should just probably get it clear right now. Mental illness or for me, obsessive compulsive disorder or PTSD, if you've got one of these things, you're going to have symptoms of the others. Uh, you know, there's there's such a crossover. Um uh, you know, I've talked to a lot of first responders and and uh, uh, military veterans and that, and we all uh, talk about, yeah, God, I get so depressed or I get a little depressed or, you know, different degrees or anxiety or panic attacks. Oh, yeah, I get that, but, you know, different degrees. But the one common denominator that we all go, holy moly, we sure have a lot of anger. 
and for me, I can just, I think my anger, uh, and talking to all these guys and gals is it, 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 it's the inability to control your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, and you become very, very angry. That's just my own theory. Yeah, no, no, I, I can absolutely agree. I mean, I see it not only in my, you know, men and women I've worked alongside, but in myself as well. And that's often how it would manifest. Like, I'd say probably the worst year of my life was um, working a very, very busy fire station and going through paramedic school and going through a divorce, being a single dad, you know, and it was just all those stresses compressed together. And yeah, that was, that was my trigger. I was, <laughs> I was ready to throw down with, with whoever, you know, and I think that's something that does manifest very strongly with first responders. Well, yeah, you, you know, um, I got a chance, uh, opportunity to speak in Niagara Falls, uh, f- uh, to a, the fire chiefs convention. And, uh, then I went up and I think it was for Canada, all the fire chiefs in Canada. And then, uh, I went up and I visited four different, uh, fire halls and just trying to, you know, get guys because you're, you guys live together, your teammates, you guys and gals are, you know, you, you're a team. And, but also you're in a high testosterone type job, like an athlete or a cop or military firefighters or paramedics. Um, so you, you wear that Superman cape and you almost start to believe that your own, your own BS, you know, I'm tough. It doesn't affect me. It doesn't affect me. So I'm visiting these fire halls up in Toronto after, and, you know, just, you know, being an ex hockey player, especially in Canada, uh, they think it's a big deal, you know, that you come to their fire hall and, and that, and what I was trying to get these guys to do is be, uh, you know, so the, the alarm rings and they went out on a call and it was, they come back, they're back in 30 minutes. And, uh, the, I said, how, what happened? You guys are, you know, let's talk about it. They said, Oh, it's just a little fender bender. We showed up and left. Um, but then the one guy, because we'd been talking, I'd been kind of talking to these these guys and gals, and and the one guy got quite emotional. And he said, "You know, remember about a month ago, I pulled that kid out of a car, and he was dead. It was a big car wreck." And he says, "I'm holding this kid in my arms, and he's wearing the same T-shirt that his son has, and he's about the same age." And he said, "Man, that that rocked my world. I really struggled." And it was almost like everybody looked at him and said, well, why didn't you say something, buddy? We understand. But they don't. So then another guy opened up. He said, well, and I said, guys, that's what you got to do. You guys, you, you all come back from one of these calls, you know, check in, especially if it's a bad one. And you've uh, witnessed death and, you know, who knows what, what kind of blood and gore. Um, you know, talk about it. You got to pro- – we need the process – things and let them go through our body, let them go through our mind and, and come to some sort of, uh, healing point. Um, but we don't because society and the stigma with mental illness is such that, uh, oh, you don't, you don't talk about stuff like that. You don't cry. You don't cry in public, you know, all these things. And, and that goes back to our society. I remember my dad raising the hand. I'd be, uh, cry, I was crying about something and he raised his hand and said, I'll give you something to cry about. In other words, he's 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 saying physical pain. Okay, you can cry because it hurts. But I was upset about something else, uh, mentally or you know emotionally. Let's say, 
And so right away from kids, we're, we're raised in our society that uh, you, you, you tough through this stuff. You don't process it. You keep it inside. And, well, you know what happens there. Uh, sooner or later, it comes and bites you right in the butt. Yeah. Now, what's your observation? Because I've talked about this quite a few times. For me, I'm 45 now. So, you know, like I guess one generation behind you. Um, when I was growing up, the the versions of a man was Rambo, Schwarzenegger, you know, all these. And again, it was that men don't cry, you know. Right. I just shot 20,000 Vietnamese with, you know, 10 bullets, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm unaffected and, and, by it. And on the other end of that, the women... They grow up look thinking they got to look like uh, you know these movie stars. Yeah, and be helpless and need men's help. Right. Yeah. So, so the, what I find very interesting, and it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on this, is the greatest generation, as as we call them, and I think it's absolutely an apt name. These men and women were doing incredible things. You know, the men obviously were primarily overseas actually fighting the women slid right over into all the stereotypically male roles and kept this country you know working um and then you know it seems like the the, the following generation we we went completely backwards and it seems to me where that that kind of mentality started in, in the 40s all these different colors and creeds are fighting side by side against this you know horrendous evil and in the 50s we're stringing black people up on trees and you know demonizing gay population and telling women they need to get back in in the kitchen so i find it very strange understanding how we went from what must have been the most immense gratitude post-world war ii to then this distorted almost victorian philosophy on so many things and i think that's where the initial men don't cry stuff probably started yeah and and, and i also i also think that uh you know, back in those days, let's let's go back a hundred years, even 120 years, and all that. Life was about survival. Life was about getting enough firewood for the winter for your cabin or wherever or your farmhouse or um, you know it was everything was about survival. And then the war, again, survival. And then you know, it, it, so where our society to me has come now, it's it's about entertainment. All we want to do is be entertained. Whether you're on your phone playing a game, um, you know, watching videos and that, it, it, we've lost a lot of that, uh, uh, you, you know, it used to be about survival. I mean, people just, they had to, you know, uh, work and do whatever they could just for survival and hopefully uh, provide some comfort, some warmth for their home. Um, you know, like I said, firewood even was a, was a priority. <laughs> and now it's a it's a cell phone and a video game. Yeah, no, that's a very interesting perspective, and I think that that can be absolutely proven by the fact that when people who, for example, have struggled mentally, go on these retreats with you know other veterans or other first responders, or go onto a horse ranch and and ride for two weeks, they're tapping back into that old school way of thinking i remember one day someone brought me a bunch of uh logs and then we had a you know fireplace in my old house and i spent the day just with an axe and a wedge chopping all basically half a tree into into firewood and it was one of the most therapeutic things i remember doing in a long time well and and on that point we could we could also talk about uh meditation because a lot of people um 
I read a book uh, a while back called The Untethered Soul. And, you know, uh, reading is very good. It's educational, you know, things like that. So this book really spoke to me. I don't know what it was. You know, you read a book one time and then you reread it uh, a year later and you go, holy smokes, this is a good book. I didn't know it was that good. But, you know, it's where you are in your life that things will speak to you. And anyways, that book really spoke to me and it, it kind of got me into slowing down and to meditate. And, and but the thing is, my point being is, uh, when we talk about meditation, a lot of people go, oh my God, I'm not going to sit cross-legged and go ohm. No, uh, the meditation that you just talked about, chopping that wood was a form of, of meditation. I have a little emotional support dog. And uh, I've tried to tell my wife, you try meditating, man. It, it's it's really good. And she goes, oh, I can't. I, you know, I can't turn my brain off or whatever, like so many other people say. And that's that's fine. But uh, every evening she'd put the uh, my little emotional support dog in her bicycle basket in the front handlebars and go for a bike ride. And uh, I was doing a different form. I, my meditation, I, I tried to do it uh, more um, structured, you know, like maybe sitting on a chair or laying down. I can do that. Do that. Sometimes I need to do that to fall asleep. I need to meditate. Anyways, um. So I'm doing another form of my meditation. I got a little patch of grass uh, in front of my barn that doesn't have sprinklers or anything. So I have to water it by hand all, every day. And uh, so that evening I'm, I'm, and I'm watching the, the, this, the, the water come out, you know, the little droplets and how they separate. And, you know, so I'm kind of doing a form of meditation. My wife comes back off her bicycle ride and I said, hey, how was your meditation? She goes, what are you talking about? I wasn't meditating. I said, no, you were. That's what you do to feel good, to connect with the earth or connect with God or connect with the animal in the basket or all of the above. And so uh, point being, don't get don't get uh, a lot of people get like a little bit like my wife, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, I don't know what the word would be weird, like a little bit weird about this word meditation. Yeah, well, I do the same thing actually um, every morning and it took me a little while to realize that I was doing exactly what you're talking about. But my routine in the morning is walk my son to the bus, but I bring my dog with me and then we carry on. It's like a probably a mile and a half walk, um, but I always leave my cell phone in the house and, and yeah, that's that's basically 30 minutes with, you know, not distracted by anything. And, and it's funny, it's, it's a lap, two laps around this lake. And it takes this, the four, first lap is kind of clearing all the monkey mind. And then the second lap is actually kind of, you know, still somewhat. I mean, obviously, you've still got thoughts. But yeah, absolutely. I agree 100%. Yeah. And I'm doing the equine therapy now. I'm, I'm trying to get my certification uh, because it's been uh, really, really helpful with our uh, first responders and military with trauma, PTSD uh doing this equine therapy so that's kind of my goal right now right well i sent you the link i, I just had buck Branneman on the show um, yeah and uh, yeah another amazing guy and again he, he wasn't going down that road specifically to do equine therapy but it's exactly you know what it did for him and then ultimately he's doing with these other people and i think is one of the things he says is the horse a horse is a mirror to your soul and i i can absolutely agree well they're a very intuitive animal and, and if uh They'll pick up on your energy, and you can pick up on theirs if you get in tune. Um, yeah, they're very, very intuitive and very helpful in, in the sequine therapy that we are doing. 
Um, I had a chance to do a, uh, this was, oh shoot, 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago, I, I got a military contract to actually teach soldiers how to, you know, catch a horse, ride a horse, bridle horse, saddle horse, you know, all that stuff. And unbeknownst to me, they were going to Afghanistan to look for bin Laden in the caves on horseback. And of course, military is very secretive. All I had to do is teach these soldiers uh, what to do with the horse. Unbeknownst to me, where, where they were going and what they were doing. And uh, that's where I always touch on the military and first responders uh, because uh, those type of jobs um, – how mentally tough do you have to be, James, to do those jobs? You have to be very, very mentally tough because you're, you're, you're living in danger almost every day. You know, if you're a firefighter, you might have to run into a building. You, you know, that's, a, you know, I know you're trained and you, you, you know, do it the right way and everything, but there's always a danger. And our military, uh, our police, all these things are high dangerous jobs. And so our trauma with these individuals, I think it's a lot of, uh, um, yeah, there could be a major event, but a lot of time I think it's a cumulative trauma. Uh, remember the guys I talked about, the firefighter pulled the little boy out of a car. Uh, you know, he, he never talked about that for a month. That was the first time he opened up about it. Well, what happens is that stuff gets stuck in us. And it's all because of the stigma. Uh, well, got to be tough. I don't want my uh, my fellow firefighters and fire gals and, uh, to... Um, you think I'm weak and it's not a weakness. It's a sickness. The most mentally tough people. And I'll, I'll use the military on this, on this one, mentally tough. They're going to a job. They, they, they could die. And so they go over and they fight the, it, it, from Af, just Afghanistan and Iraq. We had, it was up to 22 suicides a day from our veterans, those veterans, just those two wars. And I think it's down to 19 now because I think we're, we're we're progressing, getting them help. But uh, it, 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 so my point being is most mentally tough people in the world, and yet they they come back and they're damaged and they self-medicate and die by suicide, 22 a day. Uh, that tells me one thing. doesn't matter how tough you are or think you are. It has nothing to do with that. It is a sickness or an injury from uh, an event or uh, uh, a bunch of events that have happened that is accumulated and it's, it's now sick and it's in you. It's got nothing to do with how strong you are because uh, we've just my examples there have proven that. Yeah. And I love, I love the fact that I get so many people who, you know, we revere as a man, you know, whether it's a Navy SEAL, you know, a firefighter, police officer, you know, a, a NHL goalkeeper like yourself, an enforcer as well, um, saying, no, this is not weakness. This is not being a pussy. This is a real thing. And, and forget about this facade of what a man's supposed to be like, because that's bullshit. This is yeah. what a man's supposed to be like. He's supposed to be tough and be able to chop wood and protect his family, but also, you know, compassionate. And if you're going to be compassionate, then you're going to be affected by things that you know, a, a traumatic. I mean, that's what humans are supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's true. But the thing is, we don't process uh, these things because we, we're stuck being that tough person. 
So we just keep it inside, keep it inside, and keep it inside. We don't process it. We just keep lying to ourselves, saying, oh, I'm tough. It doesn't, oh, that doesn't bother me. Oh, that, oh, come on. Uh, so you come home from work and, uh, hey, honey, how was your day? Great, no problems. Really? You know, what, what did you see that day? Uh, you know, you, you might have seen uh, several dead people, you know, things. How was your day? Oh, fine, just another day at the office. Are you kidding me? So we got to learn to uh, to process these things and let them, and that's really what changed my my whole uh, PTSD and and all that was the acceptance number one, and number two doing something to uh, to get well. Yeah, well, you you touched on obviously the the suicide attempt. So you were just to go back for a bit. You you were prescribed Zoloft. You it was very successful for a number of years. Kind of lead us through you know, what, what happened where it, where it started not meeting the need anymore? Well, there's a couple, a couple things. Number one, uh, you know, I was on that drug for 14, 15 years and doing great. Uh, but you know, I just thought that's all I had to do. So I didn't, I didn't check in with Dr. Stahl, my psychiatrist, you know, by now uh, my career has moved on. Uh, I'm not in San Diego. I'm in the NHL coaching. Um, you know, and when you have a team doctor, all you do is say, hey, I need a, a prescription refilled, and they do it. Uh, unbeknownst to them that, you know, and, and to me, I didn't know I was supposed to be uh, keeping a check on this and how are my moods. And so over that time period, uh, my body started to get immune to the drug. Uh, the drug was not working uh, gradually over time. And then another hockey player cut his jugular vein in a hockey game in Buffalo same town, um, and I'm coaching in the NHL, so I'm very media accessible. And the questions are coming to me fast and furious, you know, relive that, relive that. What was it like? What should he do? What, blah, blah, you know, this and that and the other thing. Um, and my and the combination of that and my drug not working uh, led me into a spiral downward, depression-wise, anxiety-wise. Uh, everything started to just come back. And, uh, you know, being the tough guy, I just said, well, I'll have, I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh, I'll have a couple beers. And for me, that's what alcohol did. It would calm me down or, or bring me up if I was depressed. And, uh, so I started drinking a lot. I was drinking heavily throughout the day just to get through the day. And, uh, that's when one day I, I was, uh, I was up all night. I'd been drinking all night and all half of the day uh, it was about 2 30 in the afternoon and I went behind the barn and I had a gun and I was shooting targets anyways off and on and um, I put it under my chin and my wife had actually showed up and said what is going on she could tell because I was just sweating and antsy and and you know just like like a caged animal almost uh, just not liking and 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 like a lot of suicide survivors uh, that I've spoken with, you know, I didn't want to die, but I didn't want to live in this pain anymore. So not even knowing if there's any more bullets in the gun, I put it under my uh, chin and I told her, this is what I feel like doing, turning this goddamn brain off. And I, I pulled the trigger and yeah, there was a bullet in it. Um, very, very luck, lucky. Uh, it, uh, it, it lodged in my skull and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was there that I really, I'd gone 
at that time, 20 years of undiagnosed PTSD. And it took that. And my wife was trying to get me help. And, you know, uh, we were getting turned down here. And, well, we don't take your insurance and this and that and all sorts of things. Oh, he can't see you for three months, this uh, one doctor. And uh, anyways, so uh, I got sent to a treatment center. I, I went to the hospital. I was put in. A, they put me in a coma uh, for a couple of weeks and let the swelling go down. Once I got out of that hospital, they sent me to a, a, a treatment center, a dual diagnosed treatment center. And that was the first time I was ever diagnosed with PTSD. And at first, James, I was so insulted. PTSD, why do I have PTSD? What are you talking about? And she said, well, you got, you know, your jugular vein cut. And you didn't have any counseling. You came back so quick. And, and, I, and I said, you don't understand. I, my ego, being an athlete, a former athlete, now coach, you know, just was like, I came back in 10 days. You bitch, you know, I was so so insulted that, you know, she was almost, it was like that label would be making me, uh, weak. And, uh, the, the, the big thing is I read a book on trauma. Uh, she gave it to me cause she wasn't getting, I was in there six months. I mean, that's half a year. Uh, I was pretty damaged in the first two months. I was just a mean, angry guy and she couldn't get through to me. And I, she gave me a book and I read this one chapter on how uh, on trauma and how animals actually process trauma through if there there's fight, flight and freeze. And if an animal's caught and goes into freeze and fools the predator, uh, it can get away. But what it does is it shakes violently. And that's the animal way. And we're animals, too. And we animal processed this trauma. And I didn't, I, I, I read that and I'm starting to think about it. Then my wife's coming to visit me in, uh, we live in Nevada. So she's coming over the mountains into California where I was, uh, uh, the treatment center was. And she got in a little fender bender and she was so proud how she was describing, oh, just a little fender bender. But she's so proud because the cops came, she filled out a little report and she's like, and then her whole demeanor went negative and depressive saying, and then I got in the car and I just started to shake. And then I cried and I went, Oh my God, the story about how animals process and how she just processed trauma. That's what we're supposed to do. But in, in a lot of, uh, you know, in society, we don't do that. And especially in, in the high testosterone jobs, like first responders and military, we're, we're, we're geared to be that tough, SOB and not process, you know, as harmful because we're not educated on it. And that's where my education came in. And it was a long and hard, hard journey. But that's what it took for me to get uh, to, to, first of all, uh, acceptance was huge. I had to accept that I had this PTSD. And I had to accept also that it was, uh, I don't want to say curable, it is. But um, manageable to curable. Yeah, and interesting you say about the the fight, flight, and freeze because I had a a conversation with a guy who's actually a, a movement specialist, like a you know a coach, physical coach, um, but very very uh, philosophical as well. And he talked about that even in the mental health element where you talk about suicide. So you've got um, you know fight obviously is when you're dealing with whatever trauma there is flight is kind of like that uh 
uh, like you were saying, burying it, you know, not not addressing it. But then freeze was with the point where the the body's given up, you know, just accepting the death. Like you said, the, the the deer that's been caught at that point, in a way, they've already accepted death. But if you can, if they get away and they can process it, then they go back to to flow or, or fight again. But it was fascinating because with so many people, and I'm sure you've had this with the survivors you've spoken to. People speak about getting to that point of calm when they realize, you know what, I am going to take my life. At that moment, it seems like the right decision. And then they're almost in like a flow state for a moment. But then as, as is reported over and over again, if they thank God survived that attempt, right when they were pulling the trigger, jumping off the bridge, whatever it was, they realize that it's wrong and they, they have the instant regret that they don't want to die. And and I I totally had that instant regret. And I know a guy, uh, Kevin Hines, uh, he's, a, he's a pretty renowned speaker. He jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge. And he said the second his hands left the railing, he regretted it. And he survived, uh, amazingly. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a big splash, that one. Yeah. But, you, you know, uh, and I, I'm assuming you have a lot of first responders that uh, listen to you and your podcast. Um, interestingly, uh, somehow one of the paramedics, uh, she was the first, uh, first one on the site after I shot myself, she was the first, her and her partner were the first there. And, uh, she connected with my wife somehow on Facebook. I don't know, about seven, eh, maybe, maybe four or five years ago. Um, and she came over, we invited her over and we're sitting outside on the patio and, and uh, she's into horses and that, so she loved my place and, and everything. So it was interesting to hear her side of what happened. First of all, they're on a call. The cops, the fire, paramedic, everybody's showing up. And all they know is, is it is a gunshot. My wife phoned it in and said, my husband just shot himself. But do they know that's the truth? They are thinking maybe she shot him. Maybe They do not know what they are going uh, in into and that the adrenaline in itself is pr- probably traumatic you know I mean you're going to a situation where it, 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 you don't know what it is and uh, incredible that we we became friends and now we do a uh, through her we do a uh, what they call a CIT uh, training we speak at uh, to first responders um, what is CIT uh, Crisis intervention training, I think. CIT. Right. And yeah. And, and it's interesting because, you know, I got educated on what you guys and gals are going into. And of course, she heard my side of the story, you know, about uh, I didn't even know if the gun was loaded and, and that. So interesting. Yeah. Well, and I'm reading the book as well that part where when everyone first arrived, your wife was you know, hanging on to you and they weren't sure if, like you said, she was a shooter and they were trying to get her away from you. And I can imagine, I mean, the potential of that going wrong in itself. Or, or like you, you hear about uh, suicide by cop. Maybe she was thinking if I let him go, he's going to rush the cops and get shot and die. You know what I mean? There, who knows? Like that, that was such a, a dramatic event and traumatic and uh, not, you know, for me, of course, I just shot myself for my wife who just saw me do it for the first responders that are showing up and not knowing what the hell is going on. Uh, you know, 
a lot of trauma going on in 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 that short time absolutely well and speaking of the the shooting you still have the bullet in your skull is that right yeah i do yep that's a hell of a reminder every time you have an x-ray yeah <laughs> i do have an x-ray of it and uh i do use it out in my keynote speeches that i i do a lot of public speaking now so uh when i show it um it it's just uh i i usually uh start to get choked up because it just uh you know how that should have been my third time dead you know so how grateful am i you know and and that's why i do what i do that's why i wrote my book that's why i public speak is i know there's people out there that were just like me suffering in silence and darkness and because of the stigma they don't want to step out uh and tell anybody and it's amazing how many people can relate you know i always tell people you may not be mentally ill but i know you know what depression is because if you ever lost a loved one or went through a divorce or you know the, the 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 things that life throws at us you know depression to a degree you may not be clinically depressed but so we all can relate and then it comes to that those two words me too you know somebody uh actually uh divulges some some issues that they're going through you're not going to have the answers and and you know i've seen enough psychologists and, and counselors that they don't always have the answer right away either but it, the words you say to those people is me too because if you're honest with yourself you've dealt with some things in your life where you can relate to a mentally ill person even if it's not mental illness on your side yeah Absolutely. And that's something that's come up over and over and over again is if, if we're the ones doing okay, you know, and, and we want to create an environment where we allow each other to be able to speak out, you, you can't just go, are you all right? Yeah. All right. Good. You know, you, yeah. you have to open the door and then, and then be vulnerable. And that's what's so great with people like you that are out there telling your story is, you know, Again, if if we can start with saying, I, I I can think of a call that I've talked about a few times on this, of a a three year old that was decapitated in a in a car accident, you know, and and I've, I've had that flash before me, um, you know, once before in the middle of a theme park, completely different, but a kid was actually wearing the same things, but yeah, right. I mean, we all have those me too things, and if we want our you know men and women to be able to reach out, start with an anecdote of. A time that you've struggled that immediately will open the door and make people realize i'm not being weak and then as everyone else chimes in with their stories you're all going to realize that every single one of you has gone through this at some point well uh, you know when i do my public speaking and that i tell my story but then i have to tell people what i do uh to keep my balance today uh knowing that i struggle with uh you know, depression, anxiety, OCD, and all these things. What keeps me, obviously, the, the first one, I do take medication. Uh, I, 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 I've learned meditation. Um, I work out. Um, if, I'm, if, I'm, if I'm going to spiral downward, I have to be in tune with myself to know that I'm going down, like I did uh, about a year ago, and I went, okay, I'm going to check this EMDR out. And the biggest thing, and I think you could probably relate to this, James, is is being of service, uh, being being vulnerable, uh, being compassionate, empathetic, whatever you can be for people. And and like you doing this podcast is being of service. And it probably 
you know, it, as much as it probably helps people to hear these talks, it helps you too to know that you're, you're, you, you went through things and now let's use those things in a positive way. Now you've come out the, out of the darkness and you're functioning better than you were, whatever it might be. I, I'm, I'm kind of speaking for me. Um, you know, I, I always say God spared me for those that are still suffering. And that's why, you know, that's why I wrote the book was to help people. And, and you know what's remarkable? I knew it would help, you know, touch some people here and there. The emails and the feedback that I've gotten, um, and, and still the book's been out four or five years, and I still get emails and, and messages and, and, and that. I never realized how many Clint Millard Chucks are out there. There are so many people that struggle, so many people. And they're doing it in darkness and silence. And people like you and me are, are trying to, you know, say, hey, it's okay. Let's let's talk about it. Let's get it out there. Let's get some help. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, I mean, me too, sadly, that phrase kind of got ruined a little bit when, when Hollywood ran with it. But, um, you know, and there were reasons for that. But that's exactly it. I think me too is the human experience. And, and you know, your book and Buck's book and, you know, all these other books and these people doing these talks and these documentaries – are slowly building this huge library of respected men and women that are saying, this is not abnormal. Like this is the human experience. And some of us may have this for two weeks after someone that you thought was going to be your husband or your wife dumped you, or you lost, you know, a partner or a child, or there's just so many faces to this trauma. And some obviously are extreme, some um, a minor, some you can treat with, with counseling, some you need medication for, but to feel alone and to feel like you're weak, those are the things that we need to, to get rid of because both of those are complete fallacies. Yeah. There's a, fa uh, a phrase, uh, you're sick, not weak, you know, and just like any, I mean, and that goes back to though, if you're say, uh, sick with let's say you got a broken arm oh everybody can go oh my god i know that hurts oh gee but not everybody can see and uh, and 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 understand the mental illness because it's such a silent uh uh and we hide it so well because because of the stigma we don't want people to know that we're struggling in any way because of the stigma that it's a weakness and it's not no, not at all and it, it's it's so great to see over and over and over again the most one of the most healing factors is always just like you said be able to give back these people go through these dark places they find themselves at a point where they can write a book they can start speaking and then they wake up every day with a purpose now and so even though like you said they're out there helping people that that process is absolutely helping and you're absolutely right with me in this podcast like i I get to talk to people like you, you know, two, three times a week. So I'm constantly getting counseling as well as being able to put this, this podcast well out. Well said, well said. We are our, we're, we are our own best counselors um, in unity. The unity that we, you know, doing this conversation and that. I mean, you don't think I'm going to feel better about it? Hell yeah, I'm going to feel real good about this. And I know you are too. Yeah. But uh, a lot of times, you know, when I say being of service – is my greatest uh, healer now. Um, as as much a toll that it can take on me at times, uh, hearing people's stories and 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 you know I don't really try to give advice. I just try to give support. And then, like I say, yeah, I know what that feels like. Me too. You know, 
Um, but a lot of people get intimidated by that being a service because they got three kids, four dogs, the kids are playing sports. They got school for the kids, their job, their, you know, and I have no time to join the rotary club or, or, or the, uh, you know, the community charity or whatever. No, no. Being a service is, is starts with opening the door for someone being, being smile when you really don't feel like you might want to smile, but you know, uh, being, try to be cheerful when you, you know, because it pulls you out of yourself and into other people and, and you don't know what it does for those people. Everybody's fighting a battle you know nothing about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's just, it's kindness and compassion again. I talk about this a lot. We, we seem to have this society now where we expect the people in the Houses of Parliament or the White House or the Kremlin, you know, wherever you are on planet Earth to, to fix your country. And that's completely backwards. You walk outside your front door and you find someone that you can help that day. And if we all do that, my God, this place is going to change. Really? And I call it baby steps. I mean, like you said, walk out the front door, you know, and be grateful. You know, um, you know, I, I was going through a tough time the last couple of days. Just I was hitting one of those down and I got this guy that I, I became friends with uh, through AA and he's got one leg. Uh, and, and half a foot on the other side. And uh, you know what? I, I, I said, Clint, why are you, you know, I'm grateful that I'm not in his wheelchair, you know? Uh, so to be grateful, I think is a great, is a good thing too. Um, you know, it could always be worse, right? You know, um, there's some people that are, they're, they're beginning their journey through the darkness that I've been through. So I want to be there for them, you know, and, and say, you know what, there's light, there's light at the end of the tunnel and you can be happy and productive and, you know, functioning, you're just going through a bad time. Yeah. And I think gratitude is a, a very undervalued, um, you know, thought process for lack of a better word, because as you mentioned, you know, a hundred years ago, we were trying to make sure we had, you know, fire for warmth and, and food for, for our children and we do have this this kind of different pull now where all our devices are telling us we need bigger houses, bigger cars, you know, more stuff, fancier clothes, um, you know, and we're, we're losing sight of the fact of what we do have. You know, we're being told what we don't have, and, and that's the totally wrong way of looking at it. When you wake up in the morning, you're like, well, I wake up in, in a country that's not a war at the moment, and there's food in my fridge and a roof over my children's head. You know, I mean, that's there's so many things to be grateful for, but it's it's we take it for granted. We do, and it and it takes a deliberate thing. I'm not saying I wake up like you know <laughs> a Disney movie and just start dancing around the house, but <laughs> but you know we we need to take that moment to go. I'm so thankful for X, Y, and Z, and if you start your day with that every day, I'm, that definitely helps your mental health too. Yeah, I got a I got an uncle. He's 95. He uh, he flew bombers. Uh, in World War Two, and he was shot down twice. And when he came home, um, you know, in these small towns at noon and at six o'clock, the uh, the firehouse uh, will sound the siren. Uh, they do that in small towns even today. I don't know why. I guess it's just telling them it's twelve o'clock or six o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I guess uh, when he came back, he would be under the table shaking. Uh, because it, it was that siren that, uh, like, a uh, air raid, 
And uh, you know what? He never talked about the war or anything until about 10, 12 years ago. Uh, he just kept it inside and a great man. And he's had a, you know, really good life and everything. I'm not even sure what I'm telling, why I'm telling that story. I think it's about gratitude that this man, uh, uh, went to war, uh, shot down twice, once behind enemy lines, uh, you know, crash landed and what he went through with his PTSD and, and, and all those things. I, I mean, I'm so grateful for our, uh, you know, our freedom and the people that gave it to us. I mean, I'm not sure what kind of life he had, you know, mentally, because he he didn't talk about it. But uh, you know, I'm I'm just grateful that he 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 went through that and I didn't. Yeah, and we get to reap the rewards. There's there's a, yeah. a gentleman I've just been told about who lives locally here, who was one of the sailors on one of the ships that was bombed at Pearl Harbor, and he actually survived. But basically, his entire ship pretty much died, and he was one of the survivors in the shark-ridden wars. I'm hoping I'm going to be able to sit down with him. But yeah, that's sadly that's the thing is that you don't often hear stories of those men, you know. And then we, we I talk about this frequently. You know, you watch Band of Brothers. Have you ever seen that that um, show? And the real men of the uh, 101st are talking at the end of each episode. And it's so sad now because we just we've got no one else to storytell anymore, and that's such an important generation that gave so much for us to have this life. And if we're not grateful, you know, we people you say thank you for your service. It's almost like lip service. Like, but are you really grateful? You know, what are you doing to make the world better in memorial of all those people that laid down their lives for you? Um, but what two things I want to talk about? Firstly, we're just talking about gratitude. One thing that struck me, and, and I wanted to make sure that we talked about this, is after you went back on the ice, after your injury, f you talk about fans behind the the goal line, you know, doing the the throat cutting motion, and then yeah. and then later when you know when you made it public that you were you know, having a mental health battle, that people were making all the crazy pills, uh, comments and things. Question for you: Why do you think it is? that there can be so much cruelty when it comes to sports. Because I coming from England, I remember, you know, multiple times if there was a, a black player, they'd start throwing bananas on the pitch and that kind of thing. And I never understood that. You know, w w this is a game that you're supposed to enjoy just watching. It, having been through that, not only as an athlete, but then as a coach, what's your perception on that? And then now the same thing we can apply to the social media trolling as well. Well, I think... First of all, the people that do that are probably the most insecure. And, you know, we talk about bullying and, and society today with kids and the Internet and all that. I, I always feel really bad for the kid that's being bullied. But I also think, man, what, why is a bully a bully? You know, and I think it's, you know, insecurities, uh, things that are going on in his home maybe. Uh, maybe he's being abused by his father, you know, cut down, uh, ridiculed. So I, I think it's somewhat a learned behavior, but I think it's also just uh, uh, something makes people feel better about themselves if they can knock somebody down because they inside are very, very insecure. Yeah, I agree. I really do. You know, and, and that's sad. And that's sad. I mean, I mean, I think we all can. Uh, you, I've met some people that I thought were super confident. And then once you get to know them, you start talking about things 
And they go, Clint, I thought you were the most confident. And I go, well, I thought you had your, <laughs> your, your shit together. You know what I mean? And uh, I think I think it's something people just struggle uh, with, you know, within themselves. Yeah. And, and I think it, it when they can do public display or Internet uh, bullying or whatever, it somehow uh, makes them feel better about themselves. And that's very, very sad, I think. Yeah, no, I, I do as well. But that that phrase hurt people hurt people. I think there's a lot to that. And, you know, most bullies are, are, you know, compensating. We have all these different ways of filling that void, whether it's drugs, alcohol, porn. And I think that the bullying is another one that you've, you've got some, some part of your soul missing and, and being cruel is what you've chosen to do. I think it's a very poor choice, but it's something that you see a lot. Yeah. And I don't think it's a conscious choice for them. I, I just think they do it uh, because it's it's like anything that makes them feel better about themselves. Yeah, brilliant. Well, thank you for that perspective. Now, I want to touch on one more thing before we we go to the closing questions. Someone we haven't spoken to who has been on your side through this whole journey is Joni. So, um, f- from her perspective, what what is it that made her stay stay with you? You know, what what kind of uh, uh, what's the best way of putting well, it? You, you know, I could. Yeah, I know where you, what you're asking, and I, I, I just think that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'll be just honest with you. I'm a really, really good person. I give the shirt off my back. Um, when they put me in the state mental hospital for a three day lockdown, I was asking Joni to come up and bring all my track suits up, and she goes, "We're there for three days." They keep asking me to br- bring clothes. Uh, because I found out in that state mental hospital, most of the people were on a 72-hour hold like me, but they were schizophrenic and they were homeless. So I was getting all these NHL tracksuits that you, you accumulate over the years. You just get them all the time. And so my point being is I am a very good person, and I literally will give you the shirt off my back. Um, uh and I, I, to answer your question, she saw that side of me too. She knows that, uh, you know, like I talked about my friend the other day that he has no way to get around. So yesterday I took him shopping and to Walmart, and, you know, because he's in a wheelchair and he needs help. And uh, she sees that in me. But she also saw the sick and dark side. And uh, I guess she just always knew that there was, you know, probably that that illness uh, was nothing but an illness. And I, and her, 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 her parents were very intelligent and they told her, so, you know what, Clint is sick. He has really got to get some help. And, um, he's a good guy. And, you know, I was like a son to my, my father-in-law, you know, he never had a boy. So they, they knew there was a good side to me. And Joni obviously, uh, had their support, uh, which was, you know, crucial because I was, I was abusive. I was verbally abusive to her. Because that's what we do. You know, we got all that anger. And who do you take? I, the things I, I said to her, if I said it to my best friend, he'd punch me in the nose. <laughs> you know, so, so we, you know, we always take it out on the, the ones closest to us, I guess. Um, yeah, she deserves a lot of credit for sure. I mean, she went through hell uh, with me. And I'm just trying to answer your question. She also saw the real compassionate side. I mean, I do a lot of charity. So, you know, I'm a good person. I'm, and I'm not uh, ashamed to say that because I've also been a, a, a bad person 
with my illness. So, you know, I'm just honest. And that's what I like. Uh, my book was described as very raw. And I like, well, at first I was like, oh, I don't know if that's a compliment. Or... <laughs> and then I thought, you know what? And, and a week before the book came out uh, on the marketplace, I remember talking to the ghostwriter, the co-writer that, you know, writ, wrote the book with me. And I'm, I'm standing out in my barn and I just started to cry. And I mean, I cried like a baby and I was so scared. And uh, he says, no, Clint, this is going to be great. It's coming out next week and we're excited. And I was like, just, I told way too much. Because <laughs> I, I did. I mean, I, I, I'm glad I did now. But I was petrified at the at the thought that you know what I've I've said everything about my deepest darkest demons my insecurities my uh, um, all those things you know my failed marriages um, I mean I I I, was, I told everything and I'm glad I had, for, I was so scared a week before it came out but now I'm I'm so it's it was the hardest thing I've ever done but the the greatest thing I've ever done too. Yeah. Well, and the reason I asked that question about um, Joni, I had another guest, Chris Fields, and Chris was the firefighter in the the very tragically iconic uh, picture from the Oklahoma bombing. So he was the one holding the dead baby. Um, and so when you talked about the uh, Richard Zednick getting his throat cut in 2008, and then everything, you know, being dragged back up again he had the same thing on anniversaries. You know, the picture was always front and center, and um, but his wife Cheryl despite you know chris talks about on on the podcast about you know infidelity and and uh alcohol and everything and she stuck by him so it, it wasn't like a question like well why did she stay with you you know as in she should have left it was showing that in these relationships when the man or the woman is going through a mental health struggle and it may manifest in in violence or um obviously violence is a, is a trickier one but or or alcoholism or drug abuse that Rather than going, well, this person's a piece of shit, I need to leave. Understanding, like you said, that there might be an illness there. And, and if you can find the right avenues that you can save your marriage, you can be more resilient after. And, and I love it when I hear of a marriage like that, when the man or the woman has stood by their partner, knowing that they're fighting a battle and they've come out the other end. Yeah, I, it, 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 there's, a, there's so many different things that can go into that question, like what makes a person like Joni stay with, with me when I was at my craziest, um, you know, and, and what, what's interesting is she had, she grew up in the, you know, date myself, the Beaver Cleaver household, you know, perfect mom, perfect dad, um, all American. They were military families, so they did move a lot. Um, but, uh, just, I, I don't know, something in her life, maybe it was the moving, making new friends, leaving other friends, you know, that influenced her, uh, pers personality to stay with somebody like me. I, I, I don't know. And, uh, she had her family, like I said, no alcohol, drugs, no, um, abuse, no, you know, and so it's kind of weird that, you know, she somehow, understood what i was going through yeah no it's amazing but i think again that that's that's something that needs to be put out there i mean i've talked about um you know our, our drug policy at the moment we take addicts and we lock them away and 
I've had people on the show from other countries where they've changed that policy, where they realize that addiction is a mental health issue and they take those people and their patients, not criminals, and they, they filter them through, you know, addiction programs and counseling and job creation. And, you know, I'm, I, these conversations are so great because I think we're starting to change the stigma on that too. I mean, the, the drug addiction is a public, oh, that's illegal, therefore you should go to jail. And then you have the elephant in the room, which is the alcoholism, which I think is a, you know, a much greater problem. Um, but, you know, if we're not addressing the mental health underneath and we're just having a quote unquote war on drugs or whatever it is, we're never going to uh, change the underlying factor, which is we have a huge amount of mental illness in this country and it needs to be addressed. Well, you know, the other thing, too, you know, a lot of people have gone through stages in their life. You know, they they go to college and uh, they experiment with drugs and drink beer and do this and that. And then they grow out of it. They, You know, they do that for a year or two, whatever. It's part of college life, maybe. And that's what people think. Well, you know what? I went through that. I quit and I stopped. It's it's the people like, uh, well, like me that used alcohol um, as my medication. It, it, I wasn't out partying. I mean, I was, I, I was drinking in my barn, home, alone in my barn, you know. Um, so I'm not partying. I'm doing it for the effect of, of relief from whatever I'm going through, whether it was the depression or anxiety or panic or OCD, you know. And that is definitely mental illness. I'm self-medicating to feel good. I mean, and when you really think about it, uh, people that do get into drugs or alcohol, I use alcohol because, as my example because it was my choice of, of poison. Um, you're, you're feeling, let's say, James, you're feeling like crap. You're feeling depressed or really anxious or, you know, cho choose whatever you want. And you got an empty hand and you look at it and go, okay, this is what I'm going through. And then you look at the other hand and you got a bottle of beer. And, and you look one hand, another hand, go feel good, feel shitty, feel good, feel shitty, feel good. I'm going to feel good. And you'll drink. I, that, that's my, my example of me. You know, I used it to feel rather than feel shitty. Uh, again, whatever it was I was going through, um, anxiety, depression, panic, OCD, the beer was the stabilizer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, I hope that, you know, as we break the stigma down on, on mental health, that we'll realize that addiction is, you know, completely tied in with that. Oh, it's, it's, it's so, it's so tied in with, uh, addiction. You know, I don't think I would have became an alcoholic. I mean, I got up to 25, 30 beers a day and uh, I know you're from England and I'm from Canada, but you know, so I'll just say that was American beer. So it was like eight beers. A day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, that was just to get through a day. I mean, I was just trying to get through a day. I wasn't enjoying the day. I was trying to just get through a day. And, you know, uh, unfortunately then, what, what started off as two or four and then eight beers and then 12, you know, it just, the bar gets higher because you you, you just get, uh, uh, it, it, it just takes more and more of the beer to, to make me feel where I'm, you know, doing okay. Yeah, and I find I'm I'm a very casual drinker, a high frequency, low amount usually. Um, but yeah, I'll I'll notice that even that it'll creep in. Like, oh, maybe I have one with lunch, and the moment I get that, I'm like, okay, no, 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 time to gate back again because it is. It's a very 
a very slippery drug and, and, you know, it seems to want to multiply. And, and like you said, and we all know that there's a tolerance side to it. I mean, everyone knows an alcoholic that can put away, uh, you know, tie a bottle of vodka and still function normally. So it's a, yeah. it's a terrifying drug when you think about it. Oh, it is. And I've definitely been down that road and still have to address it, uh, you know, in, in my life today. Brilliant. Well, I, I just want to thank you so much. I want to make sure that we highlight the book itself. So your book is A Matter of Inches. So where can people find that? Uh, Amazon, probably some bookstores still might have it, you know, books, uh, they, they last three, you know, two, two years on a shelf and then new books come out. So probably Amazon is the best way. Um, in Canada, it, it's actually a different title. It's called the crazy game. And originally it was a Canadian publisher, Harper Collins that did, did, did the book. Uh, and then they, uh, had interest from the U S but the U.S. didn't like the the word crazy, and I didn't either at first. But uh, anyways, they changed it to uh, Matter of Inches, which uh, to me sounds like a porn. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that was wild. Uh, you, you, you know, you, you write a book, you think you got all control on title and whatever. You do have some, but they're very convincing on on a lot of things. Right. Yeah. No, it, it still works, though. I mean, I get the whole porn thing, of course. And, you know, with the hockey mask, it could definitely be an S&M quality to it. Yeah. <laughs> but no, it is. And it's just it's such a great book. And like you said, it is raw and it's very honest. And that is what people need to connect with. And I, I literally binge read it in about three days. So um, I highly recommend everyone listening to get that. Um, on the subject of books, I always love to ask as well, is there another book that you love to recommend that someone else has written? Well, yes, and I mentioned it earlier, The Untethered Soul, Michael Singer. Um, it, 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 that book really, really spoke to me. Um, you know, I've read The Four Agreements. It's another good book. Uh, it's a short read. But the matter, uh, the, the one, The uh, Untethered Soul, uh, it, 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 it spoke to me. And, and I've read it like 10 times. I've highlighted it. I've given it away and had to reread and highlight. And yeah. It, it's some of some of it's a little out there, but some of it is bang on, um, you know, at least for me, where 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 I am. And, you know, it doesn't tell you how to meditate, but it tells you, uh, you know, how the world is spinning so fast in front of us and we're not living in the moment. It, it's more of a mindful mindfulness book to be in the moment. Excellent. All right. Well, I will uh, put that on the show notes along with all the other ones that we've talked about. Um, so the same question though, is there a movie that you love? Oh, you know what? Um, I, I love my, uh, military movies like American Sniper. I've seen that many, many times. Um, there's a, another, uh, military book called 12 strong, uh, which is about the, uh, the first people after nine 11 that went over and they ended up having to do most of their, uh, they didn't know it at the time, but, uh, on horseback. And working with uh, the good guys over there that were all on horseback, and I can't, I can't help but think, I wonder if I trained some of those guys when I mentioned that I worked with the military uh, when they're looking for uh, Bin Laden, and uh, so I'm wondering, but you know, military is military, and they don't tell you much, so I'm wondering if I trained those guys. Uh, yeah, I like, I like those those two movies a lot, you know. Well, I've been working on getting one. Someone, and it's killing me because I've been trying to remember the last few weeks, someone told me 
that they knew one of those men. And I actually had, when they made the movie of it, I had a gentleman, Fahim Fazli, who is an Afghani actor, and he actually gave up acting for about three years and volunteered to be an interpreter uh, attached to the Marines because he realized that communication was a big deal and people were probably dying because they weren't able to understand each other. So an inc- incredible guy, but he was in 12 Strong. He played one of the Afghanis in in that that show. But I, I, when I finally can figure out who the hell it was that told me they, they had a connection, I'm hoping I'll be able to get one of those men on and then I'll be able to ask, hey, did you train with Clint? So I'll get back to you if I find out the answer. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm, I still haven't listened to Buck Brannaman's, uh link yet, but I'm going to for sure. Brilliant. Brilliant. All right. Well, then on that same theme, is there a documentary that you've seen that you love? Well, <laughs> um, uh, on that note, they did a, a 90, like a full night. I told you about the ESPN one they did. Uh, NBC Sports just did one on three or four of us, different athletes that struggled uh, with mental illness. Um, but they did a 90 minute documentary on me and, you know, that's a full doc, 90 minutes. And I couldn't watch it. <laughs> I couldn't watch it. Uh, they, you know, I, I saw a part where they were interviewing my mom and I just, I just tear, tears welled up and, uh, because it brought back so many memories, especially when I was a kid. And so I, I didn't watch, uh, didn't watch that. Any other documentary? I, I can't come up. Oh, there's there's one called, I think, Branded. Uh, it's about these cowboys that go from Air, uh, the Mexican border in Arizona all the way up to Canada. Uh, that was that was a pretty cool one. I'm into the horses, obviously. So, um, you know, that one was pretty good. Brilliant. Unbranded. 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 And then what was the name of the, the documentary they did on you? Um, I think it's called Goalie. Life in the Crease, Clint Malarchuk, something like that. Okay, because I've got to make sure I see that. Yeah, it was uh, it was it was done in, uh, uh, by a Canadian company, um, but I think it's on the internet now. Okay, I will look that up. Thank you. All right. So the next question is: There a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions? Yes, uh, a gentleman named Adam Keeler. Uh, and he, he's also written uh, Alan Keeler. He's also written a couple really good books too. And one just came out, uh, I mean, yesterday. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, and, and, and he'd be a good interview for you too. I, I if you were, I can, I can uh, forward you his, his, uh, his phone number. That would be brilliant. I would love that. Thank you. All right, so then the last question before we make sure everyone knows how they can find you online. Um, what do you do to decompress? Well, uh, I touched on it a bit. Uh, I, number one, I got to be, you know, kind of conscious. Uh, you, you know, somebody told me uh, one time, you know, if you're having a bad day, you've lost your connection with your higher power. Whatever your higher power is, God or, you know, whatever you call it. Um and so if I'm, if I'm getting, uh, that squirrel starts going around in my head, I will, uh, I'll take that 10, I'll take a timeout, you know, whatever I can afford five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, and I'll do a meditation. Um, you know, working out is, is, is important. It's an endorphin release, which helps us, uh, uh, mentally, uh, again, knowing where I'm at and if I need to go see a counselor, 
like I did with the EMDR. And then, you know, just being of service. And like I said, don't don't let that scare people being of service. I mean, it's opening the door. It's smiling. It's trying to be happy when you're not, you know, because once you start getting out of yourself and into other people, uh, for me, it's 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 the thing that really keeps me going. Brilliant. All right. Well, then the, the last thing, the most important thing, if you want to reach out to you online, what's the best place to find you? Uh, my email, I mean, I got a website, it's, uh, malarchuk.com, M-A-L-A-R-C-H-U-K. Um, or my email is canuckranch, C-A-N-U-C-K, ranch, all one word, at yahoo.com. And, uh, you know, I answer all my emails. I'm not, a, I, I am on Facebook, but I'm not great on it. <laughs> and LinkedIn and all that, I'm all on that, uh, but uh, I really struggle with the technology there. I do emails pretty good. Brilliant. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. It's funny, when we talked um, the other day, you said you'd never done um, an interview over about an hour. Well, we're scraping almost two hours. So yeah. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time. No problem. It went quick. 